I think one of the challenges at the moment for surgeons is uh, with fewer meetings, it's harder to build up your CME hours that you need. And so ESMIS has responded to that by launching a whole series of online uh, CME modules, which a surgeon can go uh, review them, takes 30 minutes or so, take a short test, and then receive instantly a certificate for half an hour a CME credit. Obviously, you do a few of those and you build up those credits uh, very quickly. Uh, they're free of charge to members, um, and I believe they're $35. Uh, if you're not a member, it actually works out to be cheaper than to become a member and take them for free of charge. So where, where can uh, interested doctors go to find this information? Is there a website? Is there a portal? Yeah, definitely. To go to esmis.org, which is obviously very easy, esmis.org. Uh, and you'll find numerous different resources at the website. You'll find the CME programs that I've just described. But you'll also find a number of other educational resources which are valuable um, you know, in your daily practice. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast, and welcome to our new mini-series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini-series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini-series to be exciting and informative, and as usual, just like our coronavirus and Hell Week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes. Hi, everybody. JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the Neurosurgery Podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally, in particular for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free. Now, let's get started. Well, welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast and to our mini-series on medicine and the law. So we've covered a lot of very interesting topics, right, JP? Um, we've gone over some issues that neurosurgeons face, like malpractice. Uh, disability and, uh, you know, if you will, intellectual property. And one of the most common areas where neurosurgeons will intersect with the law, and I suspect more than 50% of us will, is in the area of divorce. And so we're very lucky to be joined today by Justin Schaefer. Justin is actually not a lawyer, but he's a an accountant and also a forensic accountant for a, a, a partnership called Parlotti and Schaefer. Justin, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, Mike? Great. Thanks for being here. Now, um, just as an aside, we're going to use the usual disclaimers, which is that, you know, you, we're not offering any uh, legal or, um, if you will, tax advice. But, you know, I, I met you a number of years ago, and I was always fascinated by the type of clientele you have uh, here in the Miami area, which is uh, mostly doctors. Is that correct? Well, actually, yeah, mostly uh, most of our clients are doctors. I think we have an excess of about 800 900 physicians and dentists, but not just in Miami, they're nationwide because many of them get educated in Miami and then move elsewhere. And we remain their CPA firm um, from uh, from the first day to the last. 
Yes, and you provide excellent service. I'll give you the shout out that uh, you actually take care of many things for me. And I've always been impressed with your professionalism and, uh, and how you take care of your clients. So I can imagine uh, that many of your clients are extremely loyal and will have you follow them or they will, they will keep you on uh, and retain you for future services. So today we wanted to discuss this issue of divorce. And we have sort of alluded to this. JP, what do you think the divorce rate is for neurosurgeons in this country now? Well, I, you know, I don't have the vital statistics at hand, but I think the old saw is that um, in the modern United States, the divorce rate is roughly 50%, and among neurosurgeons, it's twice that. Yeah, and I think, so, so it's fascinating. There's some programs that used to be, at least when I was in medical school, bragging about how they had a 100% divorce rate. I think Johns Hopkins had that. Duke University used to brag they had a greater than 100% divorce rate at one point, uh, which means that people could get divorced multiple times, I guess. But there are obviously a lot of legal and economic implications of this. And so, Justin, let's start out by talking about that. So let's say that uh, a, a neurosurgeon and, and our net worth or, or at least income potential is quite high, is married and is in, interested or about to get divorced. And let's assume that they didn't marry someone who's independently wealthy or didn't marry another neurosurgeon. What does that kind of look like for that individual going into this process? Well, to begin with, nightmarish. Um, the main reason that it's nightmarish is that neurosurgeons do tend to make a great deal of money, um, whether they be on salary or, or otherwise, but they tend to make a great deal of money. And what tends to happen with the majority of the specialists is that they spent a great deal of time training. And some of that time that they were training um, the spouses are the ones that were taking care of the family. They've got the children, etc. Now that you're going into a divorce, they want it. They want it all. They want all of the revenue that, that you guys have been bringing in recently. Um, and they're going to fight for every, every penny that they can possibly get. What they've got to be careful of most of my physicians that come to me and talk to me about the fact that they're about to get divorced is they talk to me about how, how we can solve the problem, obviously. And my answer, my answer is always that satisfy it as quickly as possible, as painlessly as possible. And between the two of you attempt to make it less emotional and try to add up the numbers. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, and so maybe because, as you say, neurosurgeons in practice tend to have very high salaries, but certainly the people in this field at various stages will have different levels of salary. And also, you know, you, you commented on how the spouse may support the family, even support the neurosurgeon in training during the training period. Um, so someone going through this process at a different professional level, I'm sure, is going to have a very different experience um, as the process unfolds. Are the majority of your clients kind of fully professional, fully in, in practice attendings, or do you ever interact with residents or even people pre-residency in medical school? I handle all of them. There's divorces across all of my physicians at every level. Uh, what I tend to find is that the ones that are going into specialties tend to be absent from the family much more than those who are not. 
Um, and when you start to work as much as the specialists need to work uh, in order to get their, their additional degrees and their additional uh, accolades and licenses, you tend to have a great deal more divorces, a great deal more absence. When you have a physician that is in residency that's getting divorced, the divorce is simple. There's no money. When you have a divorce for a physician that has been now established, now making a million dollars a year, now has a home and children, it becomes much, much, much more difficult. And what tends to happen in all divorces, whether it be a physician or otherwise, and I'm an expert witness, I've been in the court a number of times, what tends to happen is they're focusing more on the emotional aspect rather than the, the dollars and cents. Um, when you become wealthy and high earning, it is more important to try to satisfy the separation early rather than get into a lengthy fight. So to answer your question, we see it across all levels of, of medicine. Um, but where it becomes worse is when they're actually established. Yeah, Justin, that's interesting because across this series on medicine and law, one recurring theme has been, if you will, sort of the fungibility of, of money, for lack of a better word. And so you bring up the emotional component and the financial component. And, and it's like, you know, so if you have a malpractice suit, as Jim Harrop said, it becomes about money trying to replace the lost function or pain or suffering or the death. But the reality is it really doesn't, right? So so money becomes like the surrogate that people fight over, right? So whereas, have you, have you seen cases like where it started that it really wasn't about the money, but then it later became about that? Absolutely. Can you, can you walk us through that? Walk us through that a little bit. Okay. So in every single case, it becomes about the money once the lawyers are involved at a, at a heavy level. Lawyers are extraordinarily important in a divorce case. However, sometimes you get the lawyer that just wants to egg on the offended party, if you will. Or in this case, it would always be the one that does not have the money. So they're going to egg them on and they're going to try to get them to fight and fight and fight. What they're gaining by that is they're gaining the fees. I'm not saying that lawyers are bad. I'm saying that lawyers are extraordinarily important. What I am saying, however, is that if you can get to an agreement before the lawyers get involved, then you can have a less intense conversation about finances. Very good. So, you know, as we've discussed uh, these high level and impactful issues with various attorneys across the series here, I think the first piece of advice we always hear both from common sense and from the experts, the professionals themselves is as soon as you find yourself in this situation, call your attorney. So similarly, I, I expect as soon as this process unfolds, the neurosurgeon facing their, their divorce should call their accountant. And so maybe you could walk us through, not in any particular specific detail or technical detail, but in general, What's the early advice that you give your clients entering this situation? And what are kind of the, the first steps of this process from the financial or from the accountancy point of view? So I've got a dermatologist that just came to me 
three weeks ago and said that she's divorcing her husband. Um, the, the husband is a loser. Uh, and I, I hate to say that because nobody's really a loser necessarily, but the, the husband's not making any money and he gets into these business deals, blah, blah, blah. The bottom line is this. She's the money maker. She's the breadwinner. She's in a situation where they've already had the early conversations about alimony, etc. So the first stage is when she phoned me was the questions I asked her was, what are your assets? What are your liabilities? How much money are you making and how much money is he making? And if you can get to a point where you can get an agreement to the separation of assets and the money maker or the breadwinner is willing to maybe take care of some level of, of child support, the problem could very well be solved rapidly. If, on the other hand, this person is not making as much money, um, or rather, if the person's making more money, in this case, it's a dermatologist, so they make a lot, they make considerably more money. If that person is able to come to grips with the fact that they've got to give this less, this lower earning person alimony, because they're going to be obligated to do it depending on the state uh, and the state's laws. I can't speak about any any state in particular, but if they're able to come to an agreement before they get to an attorney, they're going to be better off. If, however, they're not able to, then my, my next suggestion is to call your attorney immediately and see if you can get to some compromise between both parties before you have two separate attorneys that are now fighting with one another. Those are the times that you end up costing a great deal of money to the client. So, Justin, can I ask you then about this concept of the prenup, right? So that's a very controversial one, and uh, I'm a Gen Xer, I think, and I think that in our generation, we talked a lot about prenups. I don't know how millennials feel about it, but what is your advice for folks as, as a gen? Of course, every relationship's unique, but in general about prenups, are, do they, are they good? Are they bad? they hold any water in court? They're phenomenal. Um, I don't have a prenup. I was broke when I married my wife. Um, but a, a prenup, regardless of whether or not you're broke, is a very, very easy out. So you know how they say that, that, that the best neighbors are the ones with fences? If you have that, that fence, that, that contract, then you're able to enter into something where with the best of intentions and then exit out of it with the, with the easiest exit possible. No fighting, no anything. What happens is that with a prenup, when you're broke, there's very little you can promise. When you're wealthy on those second marriages that you mentioned earlier in the beginning of this conversation where the neurosurgeons have a over 100% divorce rate, on those second marriages where the, the, neuro, the, the neurologist and neurosurgeon has already established themselves, they're making significant amounts of money. If they don't get a prenup on the second go around, they're stabbing themselves in the foot multiple times. Because at that point, now they can establish where the protections are for the, the incoming spouse, the one that, that may not make any money. That is living off of, if you will, the, the, the breadwinner of the family. 
if you can provide to that person a, hey, listen, if we do split ways, I'm keeping what I got, okay? But I'm going to give you X, Y, and Z. This way, there's no attorneys involved. It becomes a satisfaction of the contract. And to answer your question specifically about the fact, does it hold up in court? It absolutely does hold up in court, depending on who writes the prenup. Um, maybe expand on that a little bit, just I mean, what do you mean by who writes the prenup? So a lot of attorneys don't understand the idea behind a prenup. You cannot put too many demands, just like physicians. And you guys have all heard this because you guys have all written your contracts with the hospitals with non-competes, right? right. Agreed, Mike? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Okay. So your non-compete, if your non-compete says you can never work as a neurologist again, that is never going to hold up in court, correct? That's right. Okay. So they have to give you a certain expectation, an area where you don't have to lose your livelihood. So same thing with a prenuptial agreement. In a prenuptial agreement, and the attorneys will expand upon this, you cannot be aggressive with anything and you have to give the ability for the spouse coming into the equation, every ability to have their attorney confirm that it's 100% above board. I see. So basically, it parameterizes some fundamental understandings, right? And so it, it is a balanced conversation in writing about expectations, right? In, in some ways. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. And I hate to interrupt you, but if I get into an Uber, there is an implied contract that I'm going to be alive when I get to the end of the end of this trip. But if, if you can tell me that there's not going to be an attorney that's going to sue Uber, Uber because I got murdered or killed in, an, in, a, in a car that was represented by them, you're crazier. Very interesting. Now, to, to pivot slightly, Justin, you know, when you were introduced, Dr. Wang mentioned that part of your work involves forensic accounting. Um, I have personally never even heard of that. I'm very curious what that means professionally, what that entails, and how that might be applicable to a, a divorce case or the process of getting one of your clients through a divorce. Very good question. I was representing a client of mine who's been a client of mine for a decade. And she was not married to the person, but it was a, a child support case. They had a child together. And this person was a primary care physician and had a capitated agreement with the uh, with the insurance companies. I understand capitated agreements. I understand how they're paid. And I also understand how perhaps how willing they are to move certain things from left to right, if you will. And what I mean by that is that when he started getting into the argument or when he started going to court or having a, a legal fight with his, with the mother of his child, this guy started changing the way he got paid. So when he went to court the first time before I was hired, he had presented himself as being broke, losing his business. Then I was called by the attorney to represent 
uh, or rather by the client to represent this this uh, case with the attorney. And when I got into it, I found out that he was not broke by any means the by any means at all. I look I the first thing I asked for was he's primary care. Where are the capitated agreements? I looked at his revenues. I understood that over periods of time, he had consistent revenues right up until he got divorced and then they dropped. And that was one of the things that, that was, that came foremost in my mind. Why did they drop all of a sudden and then go up the following year after he satisfied his divorce case? Now he's doing the same exact thing in a, in a child support case. And I found out that the he was presenting all of his income based upon a cash basis of accounting versus accrual. Well, then I looked at the capitated agreements. I looked at his, his um, I'm HIPAA compliant. So I was able to look at a lot of data that other people wouldn't necessarily be able to look at. And I found out that he was lying completely as a result of the fact that he talked to the insurance company to tell them to withhold payment. And if you know anything about insurance companies, they're very happy to withhold payment on everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's fascinating. I mean, that I I've taken care of a couple forensic accountants and and what you guys do really is is super super specialized and very very cool and and can be deadly if you don't understand it. But you know, I remember Ted Kersey, the lawyer at USC. Ted Kersey was one of the founders of the department there. He was married and uh married four times, divorced three. And um he said that, you know, his first marriage was because he was stupid. The second marriage was because he was on the rebound. The third marriage, uh, he married for love. And the fourth, he married for money. And he always said the happiest marriage was the fourth one, <laughs> the one where he married for money. So what about the scenario? And I don't know if you ever see this where a neurosurgeon, and I know there are many neurosurgeons who've married into money. Um, what about that situation? Is there anything you should do to prepare if you're about to marry someone very wealthy? Is it the same set of rules or is it different? Same set of rules. Um, I've got a, a very dear friend of mine that married into a significant amount of wealth. He's not a physician. And they presented him with a, a, a prenuptial agreement. And he called me up and he asked me, you know, uh, what do you think about this? And I said, Jesus, this is really doesn't look good for you. Um, but if you still love her and you still want to get married to her, you're going to enter into this with, with the knowledge that you're not walking out with anything if you divorce her. And I said, if you're comfortable with that, then that's it. You're done. Um, you're always going to have those clients and I've got a few of them, not many. I've got those clients who's, who's. Who were who were physicians in in one capacity or another, um, and have married significant wealth, and they've asked always for a prenup because it's not their money they're trying to protect; it's their family's money, and it's not their their decision to get that prenup. It's their parents' decision to get that prenup. If you walk into it knowing that you're going to walk out with exactly what you walked in with, then that's not a problem. It should never be a problem. In fact, that's what I think the institution of marriage should be. You walk in with what you walk out with. In an ideal world, however, you know, it, when you come with kids and, and wives and whatnot, taking care of children who can't work, then you have a different a different issue.
it's a very touchy conversation to have. Okay, so Justin, I was very interested to find that a few of the examples you brought up with your clients, I was pleased to hear that there were also female physicians who were the primary breadwinners in their families who were going through a divorce process with a husband who was financially less well off. And so I'm curious, you know, we always hear that there is a great disparity in who gets custody of children after a divorce that tends to favor the mother over the father. Um, but I'm curious if there's also a gender difference in asset transfer after a divorce. Um, to, to kind of explain my question, if there is a female physician who is the primary breadwinner in her family and gets divorced from a husband who is less well off, will that husband tend to get as much money from the divorce as if it were reversed and a less well off wife were divorcing a financially well off male physician? Short of the child support issue, absolutely. It's going to be whether they're a female or a male. It's always going to come down to the, the person that makes the majority of the money. The only differential is going to be is that the child support, if the female gets the custody of the child, then obviously the child support is going to be, be affected as a result of it. That's great, Justin. That's fantastic uh, information. I think most people don't think about these things until they're in the thick of it, and then they're obviously lost in the emotion and, and whatnot, unless, they had, unless they've had multiple divorces, as you said. But I, I want to thank you for your time and being so candid with us. Doctors tend to be uh, sort of poorly advised in this area. And so if you're interested in seeking the assistance of a forensic accountant, uh, I would just point to Justin as being an expert. He's part of Parlade, Schaefer, and Shorts CPA, uh, PA. They're part of Meditac Solutions. They have offices in Miami and Punta Gorda on the west coast of Florida. But again, as he said, clients nationwide. And, you know, I just rewatched the movie The Accountant with Ben Affleck. And if you think that uh, accountants are like librarians, I would caution you against uh, underestimating them. I think just like Ben Affleck, Justin is one of those um, those uber intelligent uh, quant type um, accountants who can really look at a, a spreadsheet and just dissect it down and distill it down and see the see the matrix behind what's really going on. And that's why he's in the forensic realm. So thank you, Justin, for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Mike. I appreciate the invitation.